I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. The Olivia Tremor Control, Neutral Milk Hotel, and the Apples in Stereo created some of the most beloved records of the 90s. Together, they make up the Elephant Six Recording Collective. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. This week, Greg and I revisit our conversation with Elephant Six producer Robert Schneider. And later in the show, we review the new album from the long-running 4AD band, Dead Can Dance. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That's the track Want It Back by Amanda Palmer and the Grand Theft Orchestra. Greg, a couple of weeks back on the show, we talked about Amanda's incredible success raising money on the crowdfunding website Kickstarter. She was able to collect over a million dollars so she could record a record completely independent of the major labels. That's right, Jim. Kickstarter allows users to set up a page to raise money for any kind of creative project, and a lot of artists and musicians are turning to it to fund their work. To learn more about how the site is changing the way art is funded, we're joined by one of the co-founders of Kickstarter, Yancey Strickler. Yancey, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. So you launched in 2009, and it's grown exponentially since then. But when you started, there were a lot of other sites doing this, right? I mean, how did you want to differentiate yourself from the competition? Well, there were three of us who started Kickstarter. It's, it's myself, Perry Chen, and Charles Adler. And the idea for Kickstarter actually first came to Perry in 2000 and 2001 when he wanted to put on a show in New Orleans, actually have Kruder and Dorfmeister play during Jazz Fest. But he didn't have the money to do it, and out of that he came up with this idea of having people essentially pre-purchase something before it happens, but people only being charged if a certain, certain threshold of cash was reached. Later on, we saw that there were sites like Celeband and others out there, but we didn't feel like any of them came close to the model that we were imagining or, or the way that we implemented it. What about the idea of launching something like this earlier? It seems to me like Kickstarter is like a quintessential new type of music company that maybe wouldn't have worked so well if you had, say, launched this in 1995. But it seemed like there was an opportunity here that you guys sensed at the turn of the, you know, the post-Napster decade, if you will. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was not strategic. I wish I could claim that it was. You know, we launched the site the day that it was ready. If we had our choice, we would have launched it in 2005 or 2006. But our, our technical ineptitude was a, a huge barrier. You know, we're fortunate now in that Kickstarter really runs off of social media as a backbone. You know, when everyone has a Twitter account, a Facebook account, and a way that they can broadcast to seemingly limitless numbers of people, it makes something like Kickstarter much more palatable. When I think back to those early days and what we were imagining, I can't remember how we thought people were going to tell people about their projects, probably like MySpace widgets or something like that. I'm not really sure. Hmm. But fortunately, the web has evolved in such a way that's allowed Kickstarter to exist and really be a, a big expression of this idea because 
you know, the idea itself is not that dissimilar from patronage. You know, it's not that far from how Bach was creating symphonies. Now, you guys take a 5% cut on money raised for a successful project, right? That's correct. All right, so it's not all just altruism. You're a business. If I want to be the cynical Internet hipster, what do I need Kickstarter for? What are you doing for me for that 5%? I think what Kickstarter's done is one has created a whole vernacular around this. You know, this is certainly not the first time that people have raised money or raised money from friends and family or raised money from a wider community. But there's a language that I think Kickstarter has fostered um, that has become pretty pervasive. The way the rewards are structured, the the way the site looks and feels. And also there's just an enormous audience that comes to Kickstarter every day. You know, over 2 million people have backed a project and about 600,000 have backed more than one. So those are people who are sitting around looking for cool things to be a part of. And so really when you're putting a project on Kickstarter, at this point you're putting it on one of the biggest stages in the world. So, Yancey, everybody knows the story, or most people have heard the story about Amanda Palmer, who used the Kickstarter campaign to raise over a million dollars for her own record, which is amazing. But she's Amanda Palmer, right? She's got a name. She's got a reputation. She's got a fan base. Well, what if you're that unknown guy or gal, and you've got a great idea, and you come to Kickstarter with saying, hey, you know, I could raise a million bucks, too. I mean, what, what's the reality here? Well, let me just jump back first and say the amazing thing about Amanda Palmer, I agree, is, is, is not that she had success um, raising funds from her fans. I mean, she's, she's done a lot of hard work over the years to earn that. But what's amazing is that she raised $1.4 million, and she is an artist who knows where every cent related to her record has gone and is going. That might be the first time in the history of the music industry where, <laughs> where that has occurred. That's true. Um, the average project size on Kickstarter is about five or $6,000. You know, and, and the average pledge amount, 70 bucks. So what you're seeing is the most common project is getting 85 people to back it and to make the thing come to life. Not every project needs the huge numbers that Amanda gets. Amanda is an outlier. You know, the person who comes on who is making their first record or, you know, has a few fans in the town where they live and not much beyond that, that's the most common use case for Kickstarter, and those people do really well. I think the last piece for me, Yancey, on this is you've proven – that this has some worth. But to me, the big question now is, can artists sustain a career with this as the business model, as the foundation for their careers? I mean, what's your sense of this? Can Amanda Palmer go back to the well again in a couple of years and raise another million dollars? I think that it, someone like Amanda, I think it makes her incredibly accountable if and when she does come back in a couple of years to do her next record. I think the success or failure of that will come down to how well she executed this one. Did she fulfill her promises? Did she give people a great record that people love? Did she continue to be Amanda even after this windfall? And if those things are true, I would expect her to do even better the next time around. You know, we're almost three and a half years in, and in the past six months, we've started to see a lot of the early people using Kickstarter coming back for the second time. And what we found looking at those at success rates for those things, those projects are succeeding between 70 and 80% of the time, maybe even a little higher. And so people who did well the first time and who were able to deliver, they're finding incredible success the second time. Well, we've been talking to Yancey Strickler, one of the three founders of Kickstarter, I think the premier uh, crowdsourcing site for uh, music and art in the U.S. Yancey, thanks for being on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really enjoyed it.
That's a bit of the track Hideaway by the Olivia Tremor Control from their 1999 album Black Foliage. A few weeks ago, I added Hideaway to Desert Island Jukebox in memory of the late Bill Doss. Doss was a co-founder of the Olivia Tremor Control, one of the three big bands in what's known as the Elephant Six Recording Collective. Those three bands, the Olivia Tremor Control, Neutral Milk Hotel, Apples and Stereo, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they transformed indie music in the 90s. Got these four friends from this tiny town in Ruston, Louisiana. They start thinking about making music as high schoolers using these cheap four-track recorders. And they didn't really have a lot of musical knowledge, but together I think they made some of the classic psychedelic pop records of all time. These records, the Olivia Tremor Control's Dusk at Cubis Castle, Neutral Milk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea, and the Apples and Stereo's Fun Trick Noisemaker, I mean, they really hold up. Absolutely, Greg. And Doss's death was a real shock. I know that you saw him perform with the Olivia Tremor Control at the Pitchfork Music Festival just last month. His death got us thinking about an interview we did back in 2007 with his good friend and frequent collaborator, Robert Schneider, really the driving force, the center of the Elephant Six Recording Collective. He isn't only the guitarist, vocalist, and lead singer for the Apples and Stereo, he was also the guru behind the four-track for all of these Elephant Six bands. Now, Robert's got a lot of energy. He talks about a million miles a minute, and I think he got us on that same vibration, too. But he's the guy to go to when you're talking about Elephant Six and everything that it hoped to accomplish. We turn to him for the story about how these friends got together and started making music. Hey, Robert, welcome to Sound Opinions, man. Hey, guys, how are you? We're good, we're good. We've, we've been wanting to do this show for some time, looking at what the Elephant Six bands were about, where they came from. It's the mid-90s, right? As far as I gather from my, my map questing of it, Ruston, Louisiana, if it isn't officially the middle of nowhere, it's pretty darn close, right? Like five or six <laughs> yeah. hours outside of New Orleans? Yeah, it's probably like one step over from the middle of nowhere. The middle of nowhere is a, the middle of nowhere is a suburb of Ruston. <laughs> How is it that you guys all came? The, the key bands in Elephant Six: Apples and Stereo, Neutral Milk Hotel, and Olivia Tremor Control. What the hell were you all doing in Ruston, Louisiana? There's a university in town. It's sort of a middle-sized university, and it's not a particularly particularly uh, collegey town. It's not like there's like say you know head shops and used bookstores on every corner. It's more. It's a pretty conservative small town, but there is a university, and the university had a uh, a really strong art department. Probably in Louisiana, it was the number one art department. So lots of you're you talking know, about uh, Louisiana uh, Tech University. Yeah, Louisiana right? Tech yeah. University, and so a lot of kids uh, from all over the state, the kind of uh, the outsiders would end up there in the art department, or you. Know, know, maybe studying photography or related studies. Um, also, it had a really strong radio station. A KLPI was uh, an incredible station in the day. For you know, from the time that I first started listening to music in say third grade or so, I would listen to it, and it was a uh, it, it pretty much all, for me and for all of my friends and probably everybody else of our age group from Ruston. Uh, you know, it was a it was a really big influence on our kind of me- mental growth as well as our musical growth. And uh, you know, over time, most of my friends worked at the station. Uh, Jeff Mangum was a ma- station manager, I think. Uh, you know, everybody worked there in some capacity. Uh, you know, we used to record there. They had a little studio, and it was just a really good station. And um, I would say that that was probably the unifying kind of 
thing, that and the art department. Now, we were all mm. little kids. We were little kids, then junior high school kids, then high school kids. We weren't in the university, but we were, you know, we were in the tractor beam of the radio station. <laughs> now, the, the way I heard it, Robert, is that you guys, even before you were in college, uh, you know, the, the college kids would go home for the summer, and you guys, as high schoolers, would take over the college radio station, and, you know, gee, what is this Krautrock shelf? Let's play this stuff. Let's play Amon Duel too. Yep. That, right? that, that was exactly right. Right? And, 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 and yeah. Pink Floyd and, and Pet Sounds and these records. You, you, so you, got, yeah, exactly. you had this great library to discover. And also we had very knowledgeable, extremely cool, uh, super artsy older kids to guide us, you know, like college kids and stuff. And also uh. we had a uh, – we in the nearby town of Monroe and in Shreveport, both of which are like – Monroe, Louisiana is like half an hour from Ruston, and Shreveport's about an hour. Uh, there would be there was some in, there was an independent record store in each town that we would have to drive to go buy records and stuff. And uh, you know, it, it, it made listening to music and getting your hands on music seem extremely romantic when it's so difficult. It's a fascinating story because you know I, I interviewed Jeff Mangum in the mid '90s, right around the time of his first album. And he was saying that he felt that all of you guys were very sheltered. And the quote he said was. There was no local club to play in or see bands. Music was this weird, otherworldly thing. It was almost magical. It was like this magnet that was drawing us. And in a way, I think it was a way of escaping what Jeff saw as a very sort of mundane existence in this small, nowhere town. So creating this record was like another world. Yeah, it, it really it really was like another world. We from the from our earliest, I mean, you know, say fifth grade or so is when we started getting uh, interested in playing music. I think Jeff took up drums in sixth grade, and I took up guitar. It was pretty cool. So you know, we were like, hey, you you know, you're you're, you're playing drums. I'm playing guitar. We would kind of talk about music and hang out a lot. And uh, as we got into junior high, we started recording and writing songs and kind of trading tapes and stuff. I mean, to call them songs is to over glamorize them. They were sort of flatulations or something you know they weren't you know but like they were they were they were amusing and they had some small degree of production quality that we that would impress we would impress each other with you know like whoa you have drums and guitar <laughs> so like <laughs> well let's focus on this robert because it starts to get complicated although the story starts to get good your friend jeff mangum that you were talking about he becomes the key man in a band called neutral milk hotel your Actually, group. he had that. He had that band from high school. He he. His solo recordings were always called Neutral Milk Hotel ever since we were kids. Okay, a, that was his group. Apples and Stereo is the band that you wound up That's forming, right. right? And then yes. uh, two Bills, William Cullen Hart and Bill Doss, started this band called Olivia Tremor Control. Now, I think these are the key bands in what would become the Elephant Six Company. Although they were a lot of people, all, basically all your friends, you all decided we're going to make these recordings. We got this Fostex uh, four track here, whatever. You know, kids. For, for those of you who don't know, before digital, you had to buy this cassette deck that enabled you to record four tracks. If you really had a fancy one, you could do eight. It was the most magical device. Before I owned one, I, I, I spent my life savings and bought a Fostex four track when I was 15. But before that, I used to have dreams, like really, <laughs> really, really strong dreams that I would like wander into a pawn shop and I'd find a four track for $5 or something that was affordable on my allowance. And like, you know, these were like wonderful dreams. I still have that dream sometimes, even now, and I'm about to turn 30. I'm turning 36 this week. Like, even now, I'll go and like... Uh, I still have the dream sometimes that I walk into a pawn shop and I find this, you know, this 80s era Fostex 4 track for five bucks. Well, when you love <laughs> the kind of music that you guys loved, you know, Pink Floyd's Piper, The Gates of Dawn, or the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, or the Beatles' Revolver, when you think that these were recorded in four-track studios that in 67 or so were the state of the art, and now, you know, for a couple of hundred bucks, I can buy a cassette deck that 
would enable me to do that in my garage. Amazing! I did not know, I honestly did not know that the Beatles had fancier equipment than a Fostex 4-track. I knew they used a 4-track. <laughs> I, I envisioned them sitting in Abbey Road with a tiny little you know, Fostex 4-track recording, yeah. and I assumed that I could do just as well as a producer, as George Martin. I started Heck recording, yeah. I bought the 4-track, I would record my friends, I recorded my own music. It was really up until I got an 8-track when we were doing the first Apple's record, Fun Trick Noisemaker, that I realized that the Beatles had more than just 4-tracks. They also had, it was a court, you know, a one-inch tape machine and uh, you know this this gigantic studio full of tube compressors and stuff and yeah uh, yeah and they could call the orchestra in Robert you know they... yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I, I can call the orchestra in too it's just it, it was on my Casio keyboard yeah there you go <laughs> so, well, well so, so so what what became everybody doing these four track tapes in the garage or the basement right or, or the studio or yeah, often the... boombox while we were in high school boombox. and stuff a lot of our stuff was recorded uh, we had figured out how to multi track with a boombox mm. it was probably my first musical accomplishment was that I had a two a two uh, a boombox that had two cassettes in it so you could like record on one cassette then play it back and record on the other cassette while the music was p- coming out of the speakers ah. and uh, you could multi-track that way so that was how we started recording and we made lots of great psychedelic recordings uh, you know using boom boxes up until you know I think I think the last time I used a boom box to multi-track was uh, when I was about 23 so like it was a method that I used well into you know us having started Elephant 6 uh, you can get you can get some good stuff well and that's where the name came from right any tape that you guys made you would mark as uh, as Elephant Six, actually, we were we decided that we needed to start a label. We had the sound. We, we we had the sound, and we figured that there might be ten to forty people in the country that would be interested. So we decided that we were going to put out seven inches and cassette tapes, and we were trying to get everybody on board, all of our friends and everybody that we might meet of those forty people around the country that were obsessed with the Beach Boys. It turns out there were more than forty people. But hmm. um, <laughs> from my perspective, I was listening to my friends' music, and it was brilliant. My own music, I, I had great ambition about, uh, w- w- without making any quality judgment on it, you know, and so we decided that we were going to start a label, so to speak. Um, I said to my friend Will, that's W. Cullen Hart, I said, Will, uh, we're going to have a label, what are we going to call it? And he just off the top of his head, as soon as the words left my mouth, he said, Elephant Six. Will is very psychedelic. He's a surrealist. He is a surrealist by, like, religious faith. This is the man, you know, now now William was one of the the two key guys in Olivia Tremor Control. This is the only group in, in, in my mind in history that debuted with a triple album. Debut triple album. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. Plus a bonus EP, right? (laughs) Yep, that's right. They had quite a lot of music on there. I, I was very proud of that record. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more of our conversation with Elephant Six's Robert Schneider. And later in the show, we'll review the new record by 4AD pioneers Dead Can Dance. Please tell the here and now. Present the case somehow and open up their
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a little bit of About Your Fame, a song by the Apples in Stereo, one of the three big bands in the Elephant Six recording collective. What was Elephant Six? It started out in the early 90s as a group of teenage friends from Ruston, Louisiana, who got together to listen to psychedelic pop records. They loved the Beach Boys and Pink Floyd. As they got older, they formed their own groups, and we're talking about some of the most beloved bands of the indie rock 90s, the Olivia Tremor Control, Neutral Milk Hotel, and the Apples in Stereo. The records they created, in particular, Greg, I think, Neutral Milk Hotels, In the Airplane, Over the Sea, and the debut from the Olivia Tremor Control, Dusk at Cubis Castle, hold up as masterpieces of psychedelic pop music from any era. Last month, we got the sad news that Bill Doss, a key member of the Olivia Tremor Control, co-founder of that group, had died unexpectedly. It got us thinking about the legacy of Elephant Six, and today we're revisiting our 2007 conversation with a founding member of the collective, Robert Schneider. Robert's best known as a songwriter in Apples and Stereo, but he was really the impresario of that whole scene. You know, he recorded his friends, played in their bands, produced their records. He was the closest thing Elephant Six had to a record label head. But despite the name these guys gave themselves, I mean, they called themselves the Elephant Six Recording Company. I mean, Elephant Six never really functioned as a business. So in 2007, I asked Robert, was Elephant Six a label or an idea? It was a record label in that we would put out our own music, and after about six months of us having Elephant Six, all of our bands got signed. And so we kept Elephant Six, but it became, it went from being basically us selling cassettes and seven inches out of our basement apartment into uh, all having labels that wanted to put out our records. So we, at that point, Elephant Six became a, kind of like a, it was like a society, you know, (laughs) or something. And it was a society that was like by invitation only. A society of outsiders. I think it's really important to notice this, Robert, because you're you're talking about the mid-90s here. And what you guys were doing, home recording on this very crude equipment, uh, making these incredibly elaborate songs. You were packing every idea you ever had into these three-minute songs, or you were creating these multi-part songs, these elaborate suites. And there was nothing else. I mean, think about what was going on at the time elsewhere in, in the commercial culture at the time. You had sort of like the, you know, the death throes of grunge. You know, Nirvana was fading out. The Smashing Pumpkins were huge. We were transitioning <laughs> over into the Creed, Corn era. Hip-hop was hitting its most commercial phase, and you guys were doing this kind of very elaborate um, music on a shoestring budget in the middle of nowhere, and you were getting signed to record deals. I mean, how did that happen? If we could have taken down every single one of those bands you mentioned and never have heard another note from them, destroyed their guitars, and made sure that they would never play another (laughs) note, we would have. But all we could do was pull out our four tracks and try to make some really great psychedelic pop music. That you know, We just wanted to make something that meant something. We wanted to make, we wanted you to go buy this record and have it practically like explode into your lap full of like posters and stickers and these great songs and all of this stuff. You know, we like imagined that like, you know, when you buy a record, it would be like, you'd open it up into like this tropical garden you know and like uh, I mean when we started Elephant Six we were at war we put out a uh, we put out a mission statement that was basically you know saying what we believed in and we were trying to I mean we were at war with everything we were at war with punk rock we were at war with you know the top 40 we were at war with the past we were like you know we were like it was a, a very loving war it's the kind of war where you want to convert everybody to your side you know not like just get rid of them you know if it's I could have made Smashing <laughs> I mean and in fact I was going to say if I could have made Smashing Pumpkins turn into a pop band but maybe we did you know so mm-hmm. like it's like you know, it was a it was a war that like you know it, it, it it's a little bit at a time and yeah it was a, it was a love war like you said.
You're listening to a little bit of marking time from the Olivia Tremor Control. They're a fantastic, mind-blowing debut (laughs) album. Uh, Double CD, by the way, Jim, uh, Dusk at Cubist Castle. The Olivias were the trippiest, I think, of the big three out of Ruston, Louisiana. I think Schneider was sort of the, the pop craftsman, the tunesmith, the, uh, the guy who loved that pristine studio sound. And you had Jeff Mangum, who we're going to be talking about in a minute here, uh, the Neutral Milk Hotel founder, who was kind of the soul child, uh, the wild card, the guy who loved mistakes and turned accidents into great recordings. And then you had the Olivias, who were yeah. just pure out-and-out trippy psychedelia they were the ones who looked under the rock wow there's a world underneath that rock let me write an entire album about that well the subtitle of of that debut album uh dusk at cubis castle is music from an unrealized film script (laughs) i think robert touched on this briefly but you know it wasn't enough to just make a debut double album we had to have had soundtrack music that was crafted for this film that doesn't really exist that never got made and that nobody even (laughs) described but look they wanted to take you is the classic psychedelic goal we want to create a world that exists only in the space between your headphones. We're going to take you there. We're going to transport you. A lot of it was about the studio. But, Greg, I don't know how many of these uh, bands you got to see live because what you basically had was a bunch of hippies, but they were indie rock, punk rock kind of kids. So they would think nothing of piling 13, 14 people in a van. Okay, right. and driving for hours and hours and hours. In 96 or 97, I went to a uh, a festival out in Rhode Island called the Ptolemaic Terrascope. It was called Terrastock. And I remember the Olivia's pulling up. And it was like one of those cartoon clown cars where <laughs> kids just kept coming out of this van. And they're carrying flugelhorns. And they're carrying, you know, timpani. And there's like 16 or 19 people on stage. I know. And I didn't even realize it at the time. But it was basically, you know, Schneider is there and the apples are there. And, you know, there's Mangum. He's playing a snare drum. And they would all play with each other all the time. And as they spread out from Ruston across the country, you know, some of them were living in Brooklyn, some of them living in Athens, Georgia, and Schneider and, and Hillary uh, Sidney, the drummer in Apples, who was his wife at the time, they go up to Denver, they would all stay on each other's floors, and basically, whenever the Apples came to any city, it was guaranteed they had about seven or eight friends who lived there who'd wind up on stage, yeah. and they were traveling with seven or eight people, and so it was always this wild kind of thing. They were as good live as they were on record. It was a romper room kind of vibe. I did see all these bands live at the time, and and you'd have guys on stage and gals who would be playing six or seven instruments during the course of a single song sometimes. Yes. Just switching off instruments, picking up an instrument, adding another layer to the song. The Olivia Tremor Control tried to capture some of that vibe on their records. They made the densest records of anyone else on Elephant Six. On these little tape recorders, they would just multi-track and multi-track and multi-track and bounce it down and multi-track some more so that you'd have these threads of sound, these seas, rivers of sound running through the recordings. You'd have backward tape loops, you'd have a horn, you'd have a guitar, you'd have a bass piled on top of that, you'd have some timpani going on, yeah. you'd have a tambourine playing off in the left-hand channel. We're coming the surface and into the distance, constantly showering me with decision. all these instruments and creating these trippy, mind-expanding records that at the same time preserve the integrity of the song. I mean, they loved melodies. 
So we talk about that magical combination, melody and noise. Olivia Tremor Control were masters when it came to achieving that balance. When you were young, you were the king of flowers, And how you built the tower tumbling King of Carrot Flowers, Part 1, from what is widely considered the masterpiece from the Elephant Six stable of bands, Neutral Milk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea from 1998. You can see why that album, I think, has a certain long-lasting appeal. Of all the Elephant Six guys, Mangum went for that stripped-down, more of a stripped-down sound. I'm not going to say it was naked, but he certainly no, we, we are talking about. was about soul, about yeah. I am sitting down here and I'm pouring my guts out and I'm singing you know, these songs about Anne Frank from the <laughs> 1940s and they mean something to me today. And he would argue with Schneider about this stuff. You know, Schneider wanted a more pristine, more beautiful sound and Mangum goes, I want those mistakes in there. Well, yeah, but we are still talking about an album that has flugelhorn all over it, sure. and Mangum was playing the uh, singing saw and doing all this psychedelic stuff, but you're right, Greg. What, in his case, was the key was the vocal and the acoustic guitar, and all this other stuff decorated it. I think because he was singing straight from the gut, he related to people in a very deep and lasting way that I've only ever seen in my lifetime with Kurt Cobain. And it's interesting. You and I have both had this experience. We've talked about it, where we go to talk to college classes, and kids who are, are asking about our job will come up to us after afterwards said, you know, you interviewed Kurt Cobain with this like tone of hushed reverence. I once had a girl want to shake my hand because I had once shaken Kurt Cobain's <laughs> hand. And it's insane. The only other artist I ever get that with from a younger generation is Jeff Mangum. I'm, you interviewed Jeff Mangum? Mm-hmm. And there is this cult that surrounds him. And uh, I think it's just because he, he, he touched people very, very, very deeply. We talked to Robert Schneider about, about why and some of the reasons why and uh, how this record was made. He is a, a really great songwriter, and he's a very soulful person, and a very, uh, you know, he's a very endearing person, and he does, you know, he deserves to be uh, held in at least as high uh, esteem as Kurt Cobain. Did you have a sense when you were making "In the Airplane Over the Sea" that this was a special record? Oh yeah, I mean, when Jeff came to Denver to make that record, he wanted to do something really special, and I promised him I knew that he would leave the studio with a perfect record, exactly what he wanted. He has a very peculiar vision, and I'm his best friend. I, my vision was took back seat. I wanted to make him happy, and I wanted him to to have something that he would be proud of, and that was you know true to his kind of you know his his inner feelings and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a very special time. We had millions of friends coming through town. And anyway, outside of just recording the album, it was a special time in our lives. We were starting to make records. We were starting to tour. We were being very creative. Elephant Six, you know, we were trading music all the time and constantly challenging each other. It wasn't just that album. It was the the, the, the time, you know, it was that time of kind of youthful explosion. And it was, it was a wonderful time. And, it, you know, still we feel that. Mm-hmm. But at the time, we were all together, living together in the same closet or whatever, you know, <laughs> like there were, you know, I'd have 75 people sleeping in my studio or whatever. You know, it was a fun time, like the way that, say, like, like, 
college is a fun time, except for that we all dropped out of college, you know? Yeah, and so, yeah. like, it was, you know, and, and, and like, um, um, I knew we were making a special record. At that time, every record that, that, that we made was magic, and I still listen to them and I hear magic. And there was no effort. The effort was making it good enough, making it great, you know? Like, we would every day go to the studio, and, and I would be like, Jeff, I'd wake him up in the morning and be like, we're making a classic album. Do you know that your, your record is a classic <laughs> album? And he'd be like, you, you mean it, Robert? It's, you think so? And I'd be like, dude, you know, just let's go and get, let's go get back to work on it. And he'd jump out of bed and, you know, we kind of wandered to the studio. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very special time. And, uh, you know, it was like, it was kind of like summer camp extended over our 20s. What a beautiful face I have found in this place that is circling all around the sun. What a beautiful dream that could flash on the screen in a blink of an eye and be gone from me. Soft and sweet, let me hold it close and keep it here with me. What about the mythologizing of Jeff in recent years since this record came out? You know, this is one of those rock and roll founding myths. An artist makes an incredible record, connects with people, but he has some kind of a disconnect with reality, disappears from the scene. This is Sid Barrett. This is Rocky Erickson. This is Brian Wilson in the Sandbox. To an extent, it's become the Jeff Mangum story. We haven't heard music from him on record since In the Airplane Over the Sea. Okay, well, I'll say for one thing, he never fell out of touch with reality. He's more in touch with reality now than ever and with, you know, than most people. Um, uh, That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to touch the mythology because I'm not that close to it. He's my friend. I see him all the time. Uh, He, I'm not going to say anything else, actually, because I want to leave that as an open topic. He's he's around. I I I guess what people are saying, he made this uh, masterpiece of what a lot of people consider one of the great records of the 90s. And and that's it. Never heard from again in terms of a musical kind of uh, follow-up. It's, it's kind of like the My Bloody Valentine thing. You, you make this amazing record that everybody talks about, and where's the follow-up? One thing is that, you know, in the case of Sid Barrett and Brian Wilson, these are people who have basically nervous breakdowns. And, and, and Jeff, you know, Je- Jeff has not had a nervous breakdown. He is uh, he's somebody who is passionately on a quest of self-discovery and of kind of understanding of the universe. And I understand because I'm like that too. In fact, all of my friends from Rustin are like that and many of my friends. You know, it, it's sort of a common theme in our social circle to be on a quest of discovery. But he's on a quest of self-discovery and making music were sort of the first steps of that. I can't say that he's moved beyond that or that that's going to be on the path again. He wasn't trying to be a rock star. He wasn't trying to make a living. He was trying to find out about himself and about the universe. And he was he, he's a very sweet, a gentle and extremely creative person. And, um, you know, he's he's somebody whose thoughts one would think the content of his thoughts are similar to the content of most of our dreams. Yeah. I don't see him as this mythological character. I see him as an extremely sweet friend of mine that I love. And he's very talented and he's an artist and he's a writer and he does all sorts of talented things that he's always done. And music was always just one of them. Robert, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on your show.
That's the track Sundial Song from the Apples in Stereo, Robert Schneider's band, and an integral part of the Elephant Six Collective. When we originally aired that interview with Robert back in 2007, we ended our discussion of the big three Elephant Six bands by talking about the Apples in Stereo. That track we just played was from the then-new Apples in Stereo record, New Magnetic Wonder, which we both reviewed on the show and we both loved. It was, you know, in a lot of ways, a return-to-power-pop form for the band. Over the course of their recordings since 1995, they've tried a lot of different things. Fun Trick Noisemaker was really this weird, very Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett-era noise rock record. In fact, Apples in Stereo, Robert has said, was inspired by the Pink Floyd song, Apples and Oranges. Tone Soul Evolution put a little bit of soul in the mix. Her wallpaper, Reverie, is, dare I say it, a very Brian Eno type of ambient record. They've been all over the map, and they've released one other really strong record since New Magnetic Wonder, Travelers in Space and Time, in 2010. Robert, as I said, I think was the big motivational engine for the whole Elephant Six group. He recorded all of his friends' bands. He played on their records, Olivia Tremor Control's albums and Jeff Mangum, Neutral Milk Hotel's albums. He just kept things going. But I think it's easy because of that to slight what the Apples did. They are a very exciting psychedelic pop band that has always made wonderful music and I think in a way that the other two groups could be a little shambolic and disorganized live, the Apples by far were always the best rock band on stage in concert. In the last couple of years, Bill Doss of the Olivia Tremor Control have been playing in Apples in Stereo. So it is a loss to everyone in that group because they were such friends, but because they also played on each other's recordings to such an extent. You know, at the time we wrapped up that talk with Robert, he was talking about how everybody was still making music even if they weren't doing so in public, except for the Apples in Stereo. It would come to pass that the Olivia Tremor Control would slowly but surely reunite. They played the Pitchfork Music Festival this year. They were recording some new music. single has come out of that. We don't know how much else is going to come out of that before Bill Doss's untimely death derailed the group. But the biggest news of all was the return of Neutral Milk Hotel. Nobody ever thought that this reclusive, wonderful musician, Jeff Mangum, would get on stage again and play the songs from those two albums that Neutral Milk Hotel released in their lifetime. You and I were both at those concerts. They were great. There was no new music, though. That's true, Jim. But when we talk about this legacy, what stands out to me is how hungry people were to hear this music again. I mean, you and I were at a lot of those shows that they played in in the 90s when they came to the Midwest and Chicago specifically. And nobody really cared. And there was a few hundred people there if they yeah. were lucky. And now that audience has quintupled. People were moved by these songs in a way that I don't think would have been 
possible to imagine in 97, 98. No. Now it has reached a point where you can see the legacy of what those Elephant Six bands meant, that music that they created, and how it has held up over time. So in a way, Doss's death is, is really tragic because I think people, more than ever, were ready to hear some new music from these guys, and his death deprives us maybe of some new Olivia control music. But I think a lot of fans, after seeing Mangum this year, are saying, man... That next Neutral Milk Hotel record, it could be huge if he just came back with something. We'll, we'll never know. But the legacy certainly has held up well over time. Two, one, two, three, four. What are your thoughts on Elephant Six? Let us know by calling our hotline, 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I review the new album from Dead Can Dance and I drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Dead Can Dance with their first album in a very long time, Anastasis, and a track called Children of the Sun. That is Brendan Perry, the guitarist and songwriter in the band, along with vocalist Lisa Gerard. They started out 30 years ago in Australia, unique sounding band in the 80s, one of the first signings to the venerated 4AD label. They combined music of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance with ambient pop music, some New Age, some world music. Nobody sounded quite like Dead Can Dance. Now, they continued making music through 1997 when the couple split apart. Reunited for a tour in 2005, very well received, but no new album. The prospects were that they would never record again. They both got on to solo careers, notably Gerard making a number of film soundtracks, including one for The Gladiator. So there was really no driving need for the two of them to get back together again. But then, in the midst of those Australian brush fires, Gerard had moved back to Australia. Her uh, property caught on fire, and Perry, who was now living in Ireland, gave her a call and said, How you doing? Is everything okay? And from that conversation, 
conversation a few years ago, they said, hey, let's give it a go. Let's let's bring Dead Can Dance back together again. So now their first album since 1997, 16 years ago, we have Anastasis from Dead Can Dance. Here's a track from it. It's called Agape on Sound Opinions. was Agape from Dead Can Dance from their first album in 16 years, Anastasis, Agape, Greg, the Greek word for an all-encompassing universal love. I am sorry to say I have no universal love for Dead Can Dance. Look, the dead might be able to dance, but they don't dance nearly enough on this record as far as I'm concerned. I cannot believe you chose to bump in with the track (laughs) Children of the Sun, which beyond the lyrics, which are some of the most laughable I think we've ever played on Sound Opinions, there is just that plodding, arrhythmic, it's dead, man. Dead is the only word for it. Lisa Gerard has a beautiful voice, and I have a reputation in Sound Opinions parts for being the big goth fan here, deserved or otherwise. But I just have never gotten into Dead Can Dance. I, I don't like the rhythms. I don't like the approach. You know, there's goth. There's goth that's moody and kind of tongue-in-cheek, and then there's goth that takes itself way too seriously. You know, Lisa Gerard wrote the soundtrack for Gladiator, and it all always sounds like that Gladiator melodramatic music to me. On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, I'm sorry, Dead Can Dance. This is a trash it record. Well, I got to say, in the 80s, I loved Dead Can Dance because uh, nobody else sounded like it. They introduced me to a lot of music that I didn't really know a lot about. I mean, you know, going back to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, pulling some melodies out of there, ambient pop music, world music. To my mind, they were the one band from that era that could unite fans of Gregorian Chants and Nick Cave. I mean, there was a common ground. <laughs> that was the group. Well, I don't know if that's a good thing. No, but this comeback really strikes me as almost like it was brokered by lawyers. You know, you've got the Brendan Perry songs, and then you've got the Lisa Gerard songs. And the Perry song, I play that for a reason. I mean, this sort of stately you know, intonation that he gives it, like he's reading the stone tablets. It really is annoying, and and, and the words aren't very good. So Perry seems to have either phoned it in or taking himself much too seriously, whereas Gerard, when she does those wordless vocals, it's still incredibly entrancing, incredibly beautiful. 
In comparison to the masterworks from this group, like The Serpent's Egg from 88 or Aeon from 1990, this is definitely second-rate Dead Can Dance. But for the Gerard tracks alone, I think fans are going to want to hear that voice again after 16 years. I'll give it a burn it rating. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. I have rented a plane. I am dropping my parachute into the desert island to hear what Jim DeRogatis has got to play for the desert island jukebox pick this week. Jim? Wow, that's very ambitious. I'm just like the queen at the Olympics a couple of weeks ago. Greg, the progressive rock band Genesis has been on my mind a lot lately. There's a a book being put together by a good buddy of ours, Mark Weingarten, asking a bunch of writers to reassess the often maligned legacy of progressive rock. He asked me to tackle Genesis, and I, you know, I, I volunteered wholeheartedly. Now, there really were three versions of Genesis. You know, the Phil Collins version of the group from the last 15 years, probably the most famous, all those pop hits like I Can't Dance, There's a middle period progressive rock band after Peter Gabriel left the group and Phil Collins took over his vocals. That's okay, and I've played them before as a Desert Island jukebox pick. But man, that early Genesis, the second album through the fifth, the period where Peter Gabriel was the singer, Phil Collins was still on drums, Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks, the guys who really put the the band together, were there on bass and keyboards, and you had uh, Steve Hackett join the group as an incredibly inventive guitarist whose guitar never sounded like a guitar. That was an incredible band. The first of these records with this new lineup that really crystallized what Genesis was, was Nursery Crime in 1971. Now, granted, I fell in love with this music when I was a very impressionable 15, 16-year-old teenager, okay? They fit incredibly well into a world of Renaissance fairs and Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and Dungeons and Dragons, what you would call uh, kind of the proto-goth, proto-steampunk of the era. It was a fun comic book trip. Now, it is impossible to get Gabriel, Collins, Banks, or Rutherford to talk about these songs. And this one is one of the silliest I'm going to play. This is a short story in the space of a song. It's called The Return of the Giant Hogweeds. (laughs) A Victorian-era explorer goes over to Russia and comes back with this plant that they plant at the the Royal Gardens, uh, the Kew Gardens. It begins to take on a life of its own, and it's strangling all of the British Empire. Poor Queen Victoria is losing her mind. These killer plants are taking over the empire. It was a wonderful band. It's Genesis, the return of the giant hogweed on Sound Opinions.
That was Genesis from 1971 with the return of the giant hogweed. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit by the anti-Genesis, the punk band Off. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions has some thank yous to say on the way out. The show is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producers are Andy Minoff and Michael DeBonis. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. You ain't lived until you've seen him do that Genesis I Can't Dance dance. <laughs> and if you want On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, my name is Wes from Philadelphia. I was calling to talk about your UK 77 punk show. I thought it was great, but I think you missed one important band, Crass. They had that one song, Punk is Dead. Yes, that's what And also, in terms of influence, you know, um, there's a whole water, crust, punk, train hopper thing going on strong still today. And I think they set the template for that. Anyway, I uh, love the show. I'm going to listen to it next week, too, so keep it up. Bye. Hey, this is uh, Mark from Denver, and um, I just wanted to say fantastic show on the 1977 New York retrospective, but just have to call and defend the shirts a little bit. There was one little quick comment that suggested that they were more after fame and glory than some of their counterparts. And I actually happened to get to know the shirts, and they were just tremendous people and down to earth, including Annie Golden. Fantastic band, underrated, and not stargazers, in my opinion. Thanks a lot, and um, great show. Bye. Hi, Sound Opinions. This is Andy calling from Mariposa, California, and I just wanted to thank you for that great review of the new Antibolus record. I couldn't agree more. I just wanted to share one of my favorite stories of seeing them or anyone else. I was living in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 2004, and I saw them at the Black Cat in downtown Washington, D.C., and uh, I've always wondered what would happen at a show if 
the crowd just didn't leave. And it happened at that show. The crowd just stood there and they stomped their feet and cheered and we all clapped. And about 10 minutes later, they said, okay, okay, we'll play another song. And just what an electrifying evening. Those guys really know how to, how to turn it up. And if anyone out there has not seen them, they should because it rules. Thank you so much again for the review. Keep up the good work. Hey guys, it's Don from Kenosha, Wisconsin. I was just listening to your show on songs for each day of the week, and wow, awesome job, guys. And thank you so much for Thursday. Morphine? All right, man, that was excellent. We used to meet every Thursday, Thursday, Thursday in the afternoon. And I was also thinking about another song for Monday. I don't like Mondays by the Boomtown Rat. Oh, tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. I want to shoot. Ooh, 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 ooh. The whole day down. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for a great show. Take it easy now. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.